Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is New Books and Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. On today's show, we're talking to Joe Salmonese about his new book, The Gift of Anger, Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy, published by Barrett Kohler Publishers in 2016. Joel Salmonese is former president of the Human Hello, everybody. This is New Books and Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. On today's show, we're talking to Joe Salmonese about his new book, The Gift of Anger, Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy, published by Barrett Kohler Publishers in 2016. Joel Salmonese is former president of the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender advocacy organization, and before that, he served as CEO at Emily's List, one of the nation's largest political action committees, and an organization he worked with for 13 years. He is currently the managing director and founding partner of Gavin Salmonese, an organizational consulting firm. I'm very glad to have him on the show. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. So I'm eager to hear about your book because I think you're most known for your work with Human Rights Campaign, advocating for equal rights for LGBT people. And then one day I saw that you'd written a book about anger, of all things. Can you tell us, can you tell us how you came to write a book about anger? Sure. Uh, so over, I, I'd say probably towards the end of my tenure at HRC, and I, and I was there for, uh, for almost eight years, I did a lot of speaking to college students on college campuses, uh, oftentimes college seniors uh, heading out into the, into the work world. And I had a, a pretty standard speech that I gave to them that was kind of a series of stories that I told about situations that I had been in uh, and the lessons that I had learned in those situations, situations really working in social change, um, and, and what I thought was relevant about those lessons uh, that they should take with them as they go out into their professional lives or into you know pursuing leadership roles or um, trying to manage and understand professional workplace relationships. And um, uh, you know it was something that I developed over the over a few years and. Um, when I was speaking uh, up at Columbia, actually, I uh, met a book agent who thought that it was something that I could develop into a book. And so over the course of working on the book and you know, kind of expanding out the stories and thinking a little bit more deeply about the specifics of the lessons and, and organizing, you know, sort of a 15 minute speech into a book, um, the the sort of. The, the narrative that kept running through the, the stories that I was telling and the lessons that I was conveying was was the, the sort of sense that there was a lot of anger around, that there was um, there were people who were angry at the circumstances we found ourselves in, myself included. Uh, I was representing a constituency that was often angry at me. Um, and, and so it was kind of in the course of writing the book, that I came to realize 
that the success that I had had and the LGBT community had had in advancing our agenda to the degree that we had, had a lot to do with our ability to essentially channel that anger uh, towards productive ends. So it was, you know, I, ha- I knew the stories and I knew kind of the, the anecdotal things and the, the tangible lessons that I had learned um, and, and how I could convey them to people. But this idea that the sort of the overriding success of all of it was about channeling your anger and, and kind of, you know, putting it towards a more productive end was actually something I learned and I discovered in the process of writing the book. So does that mean that you didn't actually know that the book was going to be about anger, per se? That's absolutely right. I did not know the book was going to be about anger. I, If you were to ask me what I thought the sort of thematic was going into it, I would have said that it was about finding common ground. And what I learned in the course of writing the book, and, and I kind of learned this about myself, um, was that I, I went from sort of the story that I was in to the, the you know the the sort of tactic the tactical lesson that I took away from it you know this is about how you do a better job of finding common ground with people this is about how you become a better listener but I I sort of until I went through the writing process I had sort of glossed over the middle which is wait what is that interim step that I and others often had to take and it was this this step of kind of working through and processing um, and overcoming or, 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 or sort of intentionally doing something with our anger so that we could get to whatever that next step was. We could sort of, in a clear-headed, dispassionate way, realize, oh, this is what I need to do here. You know, this is what I'm not doing well here. This is the tactical step I need to take to get to the next level in this relationship or in this sort of movement of this piece of legislation. And it wasn't until I actually wrote the book that I realized that, uh, you know, that that sort of interim step of you know kind of figuring out what to do with our anger was something that it, it was it was not something that I had been conscious of prior to that. You know, anger is uh, an emotional experience that I think lots of people are scared of. It's it's not a feeling state that people tend to be proud of. It it kind of has a bad rap, um, and so. I'm wondering how it is that you're trying to change people's perceptions about anger. Well, you know, I mean, to your point, I, I think you're right. I think when people think about emotional responses or emotional sentiments, um, you know, it, it, it isn't a positive one. On the other hand, I do think that most of us can think of instances in our lives when anger has been the emotion and the energy that has really sort of, um, spurred us to do what it is that we need to do. You know, I got angry enough about X that it really, you know, it, it caused me to go do Y. And um, so, so, you know, I, I think it's it's neither a negative nor a positive, And that's really where the, the title came from, you know, the gift of anger that, you know, we have to we have to view it and experience it as any emotion that we may have from joy to sadness, uh, you know, we've got to be intentional and understand what's at the root of it. Um, you know, I, I write about the fact that I think we're, we, we are 
as a country, we are angrier than we've ever been um, on an almost day-to-day basis. Um, and sometimes that's the, 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 the sentiment of anger really is born of frustration or born of, um, you know, kind of a, a lack of time uh, because of all the information that's coming at us from so many different angles or the, the sort of stresses that we have economically. Um, sometimes anger, and this is true for me, is a sentiment that really manifests itself um, as a result of another emotion. So sometimes when I'm sad, if someone hurts me or makes me feel sad um, as a way of of presenting less vulnerably, um, what I react with is anger. And, you know, a friend of mine once said that to me, you tend to um, express anger as a way to kind of cover your sadness. So I think it it, it manifests itself in many ways. And um, we need to really be honest with ourselves and intentional about understanding kind of where it comes from. And then you know, again, not use it as a negative, but see it for the force that it is and figure out how to, um, you know, harness it and channel it in a way that has a positive outcome. So you talk a lot in the book about your work with human rights campaigns, specifically advocating for LGBT rights. During that time, or even maybe if you want to tell us about your time during Emily's List too, what are the things that you were angry about and how did you how did you put your own advice into practice? How did you channel it into positive change? Well, you know, it's really interesting during my time at HRC, and this is something that um, I think other people who read versions of my book before it was done also observed I had, you know, I had a lot of anger about the lack of progress we had made as a community and about the lack of leadership that I saw in Congress. You know, at the end of the day, uh, this work was about, in addition to changing hearts and minds and changing the culture in this country, ultimately it's about changing laws. And that causes you to come right up against members of Congress, um, you know, and, and realize that your fate is in, in their hands. And so I was often angry about their lack of leadership, their lack of understanding, their lack of empathy, their unwillingness to sort of take a principled and courageous stand to do what needed to be done in order for us to um, advance. But I also found that there was uh, a significant degree of anger from within the community, from within you know my own constituency, the LGBTQ community. It was also directed at those same members of Congress and at the the lack of progress we were making and at the culture, but it was also directed at me. Uh, And so there was a fair amount of anger directed at me because as the leader of the largest LGBT organization in the country, um, you know, people look to me and, um, you know, either for the success we've made, but also, um, you know, as a, as the, the cause of the lack of progress that we had made. And so that anger, that anger that was directed at me, sometimes I felt like, um, you know, it was unjust anger directed at me, um, you know, that would cause me to be angry too. So it's this sort of, you know, it was sort of this unique position I found myself in. I was angry at the people who were against us, but I was often angry at the people I was advocating for because they were angry at me for reasons that I felt were unjustified. So there was like a lot of anger moving in a lot of different directions. And that's the part that I think was unique about this particular work was that, 
you know, in most situations, everybody's angry at the opposition, but there's a lot less anger at, you know, one another, at those of us who are on the same side of the fight. So how did you channel that? How did you, how did that not shut you down when you're getting, you're the recipient of anger from both sides? Well, you know, in any given day, on any given situation, I had to really navigate those waters carefully. And so uh, in terms of my own constituency, I, you know, I had to understand it for what it was, that it was an emotional response to a lack of progress, to real impact on people's everyday lives. And they needed somewhere to put that anger. And I did the best that I could to try and reflect that anger back or validate that anger, but in a way that gave people a positive direction forward, in a way that said, you know, I hear your anger, I hear your frustration. This is the path forward. This is the set of things that we need to do to overcome that. And I need you to do that with me if we're going to be successful. Sometimes what needed to be done was, you know, kind of mundane and boring and lobbying and working in elections and going door to door and raising money and, you know, efforts to change the makeup of Congress, which were long and arduous and not particularly glamorous, but, um, you know, required boots on the ground and hard work. But, you know, that was the answer. There wasn't an easier one. There wasn't one that was more cathartic that was going to make you feel good. I couldn't give a louder speech or, you know, chain myself to the White House fence or light a building on fire. Uh, I mean, I could, and it might have made people feel like their anger was being validated in a more kind of energized and passionate way, but it certainly wouldn't have gotten anything done. Uh, and then, you know, as I write it, most of the book really is about how I kind of channeled that anger um, with regard to our opposition and with regard to the people that I needed to make real change for us, like members of Congress. Uh, and that is really a lesson that it took me quite some time to learn that when you, you know, as I write in the book, when you're lobbying members of Congress, asking them to stand with us in repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and they say things like, I'm not really that interested in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I haven't really thought much about it. And all I'm really interested in is doing what my constituents would want me to do. You know, that's an anger. That's an answer that made me really angry because I thought, how can you be a member of Congress and not have an opinion on an issue of such importance to us on an issue that is, you know, essentially being debated in the halls of Congress right now? And rather than be a leader, all you're willing to do on this you know, or I suppose any issue is to simply take the pulse of your constituents and stand where the majority of them stand. You know, and that is a reality about Congress these days, unfortunately. It's something that ought to make us all angry. But if all I did was respond to that with anger and frustration uh, and disbelief, it, it wouldn't have gotten us very far and it wouldn't have gotten what we needed, which was that person to go from either no or indifference to yes. So that's a great example. Don't ask, don't tell. Um, can you walk us through or maybe share an anecdote <clears throat> or an example of someone either whose mind you had to change or maybe a moment when someone said something to you very candidly about how they didn't care or how they were opposed to what you were trying to, to accomplish and, and how, how you actually went about um, channeling that anger in a productive way rather than in the way that many people would, which is to become righteous, to become demanding, to be to lecture someone. What did you do? 
Well, so if you if you use the example that I just gave, because I think it's a really important one, what you just said is exactly what would have been my instinct and would have been a lot of people's instinct, and and was which would have been to would have been to argue the point on the merits, would be to say, how can that be the way you feel? You're a member of Congress. You're a leader. You ought to have a point of view about this issue. And, you know, look, for all we know, maybe they did. But to be able to put that anger aside and to be able to first and foremost, and I think this is one of the most important lessons in the book, hear what that person just said to you. What did that person say to me? He or she said to me, all they really care about is voting the way their constituents would want them to vote. Okay, well, if I can clear my head of all the emotion and truly hear what that person said, then the first thing that I need to do strategically in order to get that person to where I want them to be is to actually understand where their constituents are. So a lot what we mostly did when that was the answer, and we heard that answer a lot, was walk out the door, go to their districts and figure that out. And, you know, was there polling data? Was there some way that we could come back and demonstrate to that person, you'll vote with us if you feel like that is how your constituents would like you to vote? Well, here's a poll. You know, here's a bunch of research. Here's a bunch of information from local newspapers in your district that ought to demonstrate to you that, in fact, not only would your constituents not mind you voting to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they'd actually like you to. I mean, the vast amount of money that we spent lobbying Congress to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell was on polling in states and congressional districts that we were able to bring back drop on the desk of a member of Congress and say, here you go, here's your evidence. And you'd be amazed at the number of times they looked through those polls, they looked at the research, they looked at the data, they might call their own pollster to get them to sort of validate it and say, you know, this was really helpful. If this is where my constituents want me to be, this is where I'll be. So, and, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and, and, and remarkably, that is how we got the vast majority of people we needed to go from no to yes. I, I just wanted to – I was very eager to ask you about that because what you just described sounds like a – what could be a tedious process. I, I mean you're talking about, I imagine, getting on a plane or getting in a car or a train, heading out somewhere, conducting a poll, which meant talking to people. It, what you described sounds like it took a lot of time and effort, and I, I wonder if sometimes people – hope to persuade someone else of their position simply because they are convinced their position is right and if and if what you're kind of telling us is that being right is not the same as being effective well i think both things are true and i think there are critics who would say but what about you know what about the work of making more sustainable change what about the work of really compelling that person to actually stand with you on principle as opposed to simply following the whim of their constituency i've been in washington and around congress long enough to know that people being in line with their constituency seems to be the driving way that you know they make most of their decisions so why not do what works. And I just felt, look, ultimately I had a responsibility to the thousands and thousands of, you know, LGBT service members who were serving in silence or who had been dishonorably discharged. And so my responsibility was to repeal that bill. However, I, you know, thought we could most expeditiously do it. Now, having said that, I will also say that, you know, here's the other outcome. 
And this happened a lot. So that guy from Nebraska, and this happened with a senator from Nebraska, you know, Senator Ben Nelson. He he wanted to know that to vote to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell was something that his constituents would want him to do. And so we went out to Nebraska and we came back armed with all the proof we needed that you know he would be not out of line with his constituents to do this. And we did it in a very compelling, very strategic, comprehensive way. And he felt very comfortable voting with us based on what we presented to him. The other thing that that... It, 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 that That process did two other things, though. It said to him, okay, this is a group of people in a constituency that heard me, that listened to me, that might not have liked the way that I got to yes, but they were willing to sort of do what I needed in order to get me there. And then in the aftermath of that, in the aftermath of voting to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the number of these members who would go back to their districts and then come back to Washington and say, you would be amazed at the number of people who congratulated me. You know, I got off the plane at the airport back home and some guy came up to me and shook my hand and said, thank you for repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Like they they, the experience kind of opened them up to sort of coming back to us and say, "Okay, what's next? You know, so so like like if the first foray into this and the first exercise was done the way that we did it, it it had the kind of residual effect of opening their eyes and opening the possibility for them to actually give more thought to our agenda, to give more thought to our issues. So so many of them who, you know, it, it felt sort of transactional. You know, here's what your constituents want you to do. Here's the poll that proves it. Do it. It, it got them to yes, but it really got them to think differently about our issues and about, you know, that, that, that being with the LGBT community on a set of issues maybe was less of a liability and more of an asset. And so they opened their eyes and they opened their ears to the possibility of what was next in a more substantial way. So it sounds like the change of heart that perhaps on some level you too wanted and that your critics wanted you to secure uh, before or, or wanted you to, to make happen, um, in addition to getting the yes, it sounds like that change of heart sometimes happens after you secure the yes, after you have gotten someone to give you what you want, um, perhaps for more instrumental reasons. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, because I, you know, I, I think, look, it's about, as I said, it's about hearing what this person said, hearing what was at the heart of this person's resistance, not agreeing that that should be what's at the heart of that person's resistance, but taking it at face value and saying, okay, if that's where you are right now, if that's what's at the heart of your resistance, that's where I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to find that common ground with you. I'm going to work with you in a way that you need me to work with you. And so, all of that kind of lays down this foundation of mutual respect, kind of lays down a foundation for a member of Congress who may have never worked with us before, never, you know, taken a, a position on an LGBT issue. You know, there, look, there are certain parts of the country when organized labor or big business or the Hispanic community or the trial lawyers walk into your office and you think, wow, I've had a, a career of you know, taking positions on their issues. I understand their power. I understand how I'm going to work with them. I've wrapped my head around their issues agenda, but I haven't done that with the LGBT community. And so, you know, we, we had to, 
we had to start, we, you know, we had to sort of lay the groundwork to start that relationship. And you, you can't overlook that and you can't skip past it, you know, like, like a sustainable relationship for a whole set of issues moving forward is something that was just as important as winning on the merits of the one issue in front of us today. So you have to have a long game. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the most important thing, and, you know, as you said, is, um, is being able to put your anger aside and hear what that person is telling you. And, and sometimes it's not even so transactional. I just want to vote with my constituents. And, and, you know, we've all experienced this. If someone says something to you that's anti-gay or, you know, or, or, or anti-trans or not supportive or born out of like a misguided idea about something, rather than reacting with anger, if you really listen to what they're saying and you ask a bunch of questions and you remain committed to understanding what's at the heart of that resistance – Oftentimes, you know, the same statement given by two different people, one, you know, at the heart of it is ignorance and misunderstanding and, you know, a lifetime of being taught the wrong lessons. And at the heart of somebody else's is fear, you know, fear of maybe not understanding or accepting their own sexuality or, you know, um, and, and, and so to really be able to hear and understand what is at the heart of what someone is saying gives you everything you need in terms of how you go back at that person and try to change them. So you devote a whole chapter to this on, on how to listen mindfully. But what do you do when the other person is saying something that's factually wrong or or something that is outright disrespectful um how do you why do you let them keep topic talking why why continue listening to them if if a lot of their beliefs are built on premises that are that are wrong factually or or that are racist or homophobic well, one of the most important reasons to actually listen to what someone says, even when it's hard, and let someone really talk, what I call sort of talk something out, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's you know, just sort of someone you encounter who you disagree with, is because a lot of times when they are sort of laying out misinformation or misguided ideas or things that are homophobic or xenophobic or misogynistic, it sort of contained within their rhetoric will be something um, useful. Like, you know, they might, if you let them go on long enough, they might say, and you know, this is how I was raised, or this is how people where I come from believe, or this is what my minister says. This is what the Bible says. This is what I was taught in church. This is, so to let someone talk and to listen even when it's hard, um, sometimes we'll let them talk long enough that contained within what they're saying, it, it helps you to understand what's at the root of what they're saying, you know, where it comes from, what it's born of. And that one piece of information may be um, the whole sort of how you then um, con consider the response back. Mm. So. Um, you know, how someone was raised or, or, or what someone's friends think or what someone's family thinks or, you know, what they were taught um, by their parents is very different than what somebody hears in church, um, uh, you know, and 
again, not that um, you should sort of take what people have to say and not push back against it. It's just that how you push back has a lot to do with actually listening and hearing what they say. And the other thing is, it's not so much sitting and listening and letting them finish. It's And this happens to all of us. As someone is speaking to you in a way that you find offensive or misguided, what we tend to do is we tend to start crafting our response and we tend to start to have the conversation in our head that we're going to have back to them before they've even finished speaking. And so that that response is being crafted as they're talking to you in a way that you know, you're probably not hearing everything you need to make that response be a truly effective one. But what if you're in a situation where you have gotten to a place where you're, tr- you're, you're really interested in talking to someone who's on the other side, let's say, and you, you're really willing to be curious and to listen, and you try to find out what their resistance is to a certain thing that you want or to a certain position that you have. And, and what if you try to find out and you don't get much in return, I mean, in my own life, per- personally and even professionally, in, in my work as a psychotherapist, sometimes people don't really open up about why they're opposed to something. Has has that ever happened to you? And how how do you deal with it? Well, I mean, you know, I in terms of lobbying, uh, one of the things that I found incredibly useful was to begin. It had a lot to do with how you begin the conversation. And I would often say to a, you know, a member of Congress, you know, look, I'm here to talk about repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I'm here to talk about the Defense of Marriage Act or the hate crimes bill. And I'm curious to know what you think about that. And if you don't support it, you know, what's at the heart of your resistance? What, what, what's the reason for your, for your lack of support? So everything that I just put forward there was framed in a question. You know, the instinct would be to walk in and say, you know, I'm here to talk about the Matthew Shepard hate crimes bill, which obviously is a very important piece of legislation and would protect people against hate-based violence. And it's something that we think is really important and the community really needs. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, that's how a lot of people sort of walk in. A lot of people walk in, um, wanting feeling compelled to kind of put forward their own point of view or help people understand where they come from as opposed to sort of the first way of starting that conversation which is entirely framed in questions and entirely framed in not only a question but a question that hopefully will compel someone to actually speak freely and without judgment about what's at the heart of their resistance now you know that's obviously easier said than done but i do think that you know, it's an intention that a lot of people don't set for themselves. Um, I write in the book about uh, in in 2007, we did um, in in conjunction with Logo Television, we did a Democratic presidential forum on Logo, and each of the Democratic presidential candidates came on and were interviewed by three of us. Uh, for about 15 minutes about a whole range of issues. And everyone in the community was reaching out to me and saying, you know, when Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or John Edwards get on that stage, you've got to make sure that you use their your time to make sure they understand how offensive their resistance to marriage is. And you've got to make sure that you tell them how disappointed we are 
with the fact that they don't support marriage equality. And I didn't do that. With each of them, I said, you know, listen, respecting that we are in very different places on the subject of marriage, I think that it would help the community really understand what's in your heart. Um, you know, if, if you could talk a little bit about you know, sort of what is at the heart of your resistance? What is it that causes you to um, not support marriage equality? And each of those candidates gave very different answers. The, 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 you know, the, 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 the true cause of their resistance wasn't so immediately um, apparent. But if you thought about what they said, you know, you kind of started to realize who genuinely doesn't support marriage and who really does, but for political reasons is unwilling to, you know, and who has some fear about it, some political, ex, you know, sort of expediency fear about it, and who really is kind of stuck in old ideas, you know, and, and if you listen to that debate, it's interesting because you've sort of, none of them really said it this way, but if you paid close attention to their words, you sort of thought John Edwards was stuck in old ideas that had to do with his upbringing and his faith traditions. Uh, Hillary Clinton probably had some work to do in kind of understanding and wrapping her head around the specifics of it as a public policy issue. And Barack Obama, he supported it, but for political reasons, he just wasn't going to. And so... Those are three very different kind of sources of resistance, um, even though each of them more or less said very similar things. But there were there were sort of clues and words contained within their statements that helped me as a keen observer and a good listener to kind of understand that each of them were coming from very different places. But how does that information then help you get what you want? Well, so... Um, it, 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 well, it would have created three very different strategies in terms of how I approached each of them. So for Senator, for at the time, Secretary Clinton or Senator Clinton at the time, um, I felt like still, I don't know whether it was a generational thing. I think it probably was a generational thing, just needed more, um, encounters with people, you know, hearing their stories, understanding the public policy particulars of marriage and the real inequities that we faced in the absence of it. Like she just really still needed, I think, to have uh, more exposure to it as a public policy issue. I think with Senator Edwards, um, you know, it's a good question. I think we had a lot of people on our religion and faith council. We had a lot of people from faith traditions who were speaking out about marriage equality. And I think that Somebody like me, it would have told me that somebody like me was probably not the right person to continue to go at him and to try to move him. But, you know, North Carolina religious leaders from where he was raised and where he was from who were serving on our um, you know, marriage coalition would have been better, more effective, more credible voices to put in front of him. Uh, and, you know, and with Senator Obama, it really was helping him to understand that it was not a political liability to come out in favor of marriage equality. Now, you know, the thing about that interaction was only one of them actually became president and we were only left with the one of them, you know, uh, Senator and then President Obama to actually have to lobby on the issue. Mm. So I want to fast forward then, speaking of elections, to the president because 
we're going through an interesting time right now as a country where I, th- I think the country's pretty divided and people are having a very difficult time talking to one another. I think just like our two candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, are having a very hard time talking to one another. You're, you're very clear in your book about um, being a Democrat. How are you dealing with um, conversations that you're having with people in your life uh, around this election? How, how do you deal with situations where you're hearing things now that don't make sense or that that involve lies and involve lots of untruths. How, how are you handling that? And what advice do you have for us uh, in terms of navigating what remains of this, of this campaign? Well, I think there are, there are a couple of things that, that I see that are creating, uh, you know, a significant degree of anger in this election cycle. One is, um, you know, if you look at, Many of the people supporting Donald Trump or in, or even many of the people who are supporting Bernie Sanders in the primary, um, a lot of the, the sentiment that they were expressing was anger, anger and frustration uh, that um, they feel like, you know, the economic turnaround that this country has experienced over the last five or six years hasn't um, hit them yet. They're not, you know, that, that the system is rigged, that there is inequity in our economics, um, you know, a whole range of things that are. Um, causing people to feel angry. Um, I think there's also a fair amount of anger now uh, about the choices that people feel that they have, uh, you know, that, that neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton are satisfactory choices to them. And I think they're angry about that. And um, in the case of Donald Trump, he has been consistently on almost a daily basis, I think, reflecting that anger back and sort of validating and firing up that anger in an incendiary way. So all he's doing is making the anger worse. So there's a lot there and there's a lot for people to navigate through. And what I always say to people is that elections really come down to one thing, and that is a selfish choice that each of us makes between two candidates And we can be angry about everything and anything, but at the end of the day, one of two people is going to be the president, and we need to take the anger and the emotion and the passion out of it, and quite frankly, take a lot of kind of how we evaluate people running for office out of it, like their their look and their demeanor and whatnot, and make a selfish but difficult decision about which person is going to serve our best interest. And and it may be, you know, on a scale of one to 10, Donald Trump is a zero and Hillary Clinton's a four when it comes to things that are important to you. And that in and of itself makes you incredibly angry. But to, to sort of, without a lot of emotion, say, well, if she, he's a zero and she's a four, then I'm for the four. I may not be happy about the fact that she be on, you know she's a four, but four is better than zero, and so I'm for her. And what I think the LGBT community did, if, you know, as individuals to take lessons from that is to sort of say, okay, she's a four, but a four is better than a zero, and you know, if she delivers on those four things, what next? Um, if she's a four rather than a zero, isn't she more likely to become a ten just because she's for something? So. You know, I always I, I, I try to sort of ask people to 
be more selfish about the electoral process. Like, mm. stop thinking about, you know, he's a bad guy and she's an untrustworthy person and they both want this job and I don't like either one of them. And start thinking about, well, but what's important to you? You know, what are the top three things that are important to you? Um, what are the things that you think the president of the United States has the ability to do that is important in your life? Um, you know, and I say this to young women a lot, um, really be honest and, you know, and, and, and think hard about the two or three things that are most important to you as a, you know, 25 year old woman going out into the work world, you know, is it your economic opportunity? Is it, making your way towards leadership, um, you know, as a woman, is it about your reproductive health? Is it, you know, you know, what is it about your parent? What is it about? And in a very sort of dispassionate, hard, honest way, which of these two people has the ability to have the greatest impact on those three things? Put everything else aside, what they look like, what they say, how they sound, you know, whether you think that you trust them or not, um, and make that decision and then move on and hope that your choice gets it and then immediately start to think about the role you play in compelling that person to satisfy the needs of your life. But you have an entire chapter devoted to overcoming differences. And with something like this election, I'm what I find myself concerned about sometimes is not just the future of this country in terms of who, who's going to be president, but I also worry about the future of, of the people. And, and I find even in my own circles, in my own families, that sometimes there are big fights and sometimes um, people are, are not speaking to each other, not speaking well to each other because they are on opposite sides of the table when it comes to this election. So I, how do you... How do you manage to have a civilized conversation with someone who is voting for the other candidate? Well, you know, I generally um, I mean, I support Senator. I support Secretary Clinton. I don't often meet or, or you know, come across somebody who is supporting Donald Trump. But obviously, millions of people are. Uh, I met someone the other day who was. And I and it's funny because. He said to me, most people, when I say I'm supporting Donald Trump, like they hold their nose, they roll their eyes, they say, are you crazy? Are you nuts? What's wrong with you? And I simply said to him, that's very interesting to me. You know, help me to understand what the three or four things are that are causing you or compelling you to support Donald Trump. And what are the three or four things that are, you know, at the heart of your resistance to Hillary Clinton? Just just talk me through that and help me to understand that. And he was sort of struck that I, you know, somebody who is, you know, kind of so obviously on the other side of the spectrum from Donald Trump, Trump was like, I think just kind of affording him that level of respect and starting again with a question and actually being curious about what was, what was at the heart of his support um, was in and of itself really helpful to him because it gave him the space then to actually have that conversation. And like he said, the vast majority of people, when I tell them I'm supporting Donald Trump, at least that I know, say like, you're nuts. You're crazy. Like, what's wrong with you? He's a bigot. He's anti-woman. He's this. He's that. So like, you know, he doesn't have any, no one's given him any space to even, you know, consider the choice. And what I thought was interesting when I talked to him was he had some reasons for supporting Donald Trump that were kind of about 
you know, his business acumen and sort of a, a businessman's way of thinking about governing and leading. But in as much as he started by talking about he hated Hillary Clinton and he didn't like Hillary Clinton, and he didn't trust Hillary Clinton. When I gave him the space to sort of talk through his resistance to Hillary Clinton, he couldn't come up with a tangible reason for why he didn't like Hillary Clinton. He couldn't come up with what even he thought was a sort of a valid reason for characterizing her as being dishonest. And he just he couldn't. You know, at the end of it, by just sort of giving him the space and letting him talk through it and saying, hey, you know, I'm I've got some real strong reasons for why I support her that are based in things she's done and actions that she's going to take. And if you can move past sort of the rhetoric around her being a dishonest, you know, person, maybe you can be open to at least considering some of these positions. You know, Um, I think for me as a gay man, you know, I. I can if I give someone that space to sort of have that civil back and forth, I can say, you know, for better or worse, um, when it comes to my rights, um, you know, for all of his business acumen and the tough way he's going to run the country, um, you know, he's on record as saying that he would take a lot of them away. And that's really important to me. And, you know, I would hope that that would be important to you. You know, so that's a it's a. It's a curious, questioning way of drawing out what's at the heart of someone's resistance and kind of opening them up to being able to sort of lay at their feet something that you think is a compelling reason for them to have a different point of view. Did that conversation help to change your mind about anything? It didn't change my mind, but I think that it gave him some pause, uh, You know, I don't let's put it this way. I don't know that he's I don't think he's going to vote for Hillary Clinton. But I think that if and when Hillary Clinton's the president, he wouldn't have the same kind of visceral resistance to her that he might otherwise. You know, I think um, somebody gave him the space and the respect to talk about his choice in a way that he hadn't had um, to maybe talk things out to maybe land in a different place, not so much with regard to Donald Trump, but with regard to Hillary Clinton. And I was, you know, and, and, and in giving him that space and opening up that dialogue, it just gave me the opportunity to lay one or two things at his feet that were kind of personal to me, that as somebody I knew and considered a friend, I wanted him to take with him. So as I, as I went through the book, I noticed that many a lot of what you have to say, a lot of what you have to offer is very practical and useful advice for how to negotiate or how to communicate and get what you want in, in lots of situations. Many of your examples come from your work at HRC, but I'm wondering who you wrote this book for and what are the kinds of situations besides trying to get a bill passed do you imagine people can use these suggestions towards? Well, as I as I lay out in the book, um, the examples that I use are often about trying to get a bill passed or trying to get somebody, you know, who in a very high profile way was in sharp disagreement with me to at least find some common ground. But the, the, the sort of the tangible applications that I hope anybody would take with them uh, would be around navigating your own personal relationships, navigating your own conversations with people in your life, whether it's friends or family who don't agree with you. Um, I think a lot of it applies to the workplace, uh, finding common ground and overcoming differences with people you work with. Uh, There's a lot in the book about, um, 
you know, how to ask for things and how to get what you want at work, uh, whether it's a promotion or a raise. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it is designed, you know, again, not, I mean, look, it, it's also would be applicable to somebody who is going out there and trying to pass a piece of legislation or advance sweeping show, social change. Absolutely. But I think it is, um, it, it, it would be incredibly well suited, I think, um, especially to young people who are setting out uh, on a career path for the first time and looking to be stronger in their relationships and in how to get what they want, or for anybody just trying to navigate their interpersonal relations in a way that uh, creates less anger and more accord and um, in a way that really opens each person's eyes towards seeing you know, what's at the heart of someone's resistance to what they care about. You have a chapter called the, the Sheer Whale Strategy, and, and to be frank, I was a little bit skeptical upon entering this chapter because, in my experience, sometimes being willful, too willful, can get us into trouble rather than getting us what we want. In your view, how can sheer will be used productively? So I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is, um, again, when you're able to put anger aside, when you're able to really consider what it is that you're up against, um, the challenge or the rejection or, you know, whatever it is that you're dealing with, how do you sort of first and foremost evaluate whether or not to fight on, whether or not to completely concede and walk off the field, or whether or not to take some form of compromise in the middle. And if the determination you make is to fight on, is to keep going, uh, you know, sometimes the only thing that really helps us to be successful is sheer will, is an unwillingness to give up, an unwillingness to stop trying to find creative solutions and different ways to do things, uh, an unwillingness to concede at all, and um, you know, just a certainty that fighting all the way is, the, is, is what needs to be done. And I think then when, when that's your determination, I, I, I think that's probably – um, there's probably less practical application in that chapter and more kind of examples of situations where sheer will has won the day. And I think that whether it's in the AIDS epidemic or in, you know, the fight for marriage equality, uh, an unwillingness to give up and, you know, in, in some cases, a life or death need to be creative and innovative about finding the right solution, finding the right set of people um, to come forward, um, sometimes making sacrifices like, for instance, I'm not the right, you know, the sheer will, if, if my sheer will and my unwillingness to give up and my, you know, at any cost getting this done is the only solution. And someone says, well, you're not the person to do it. Then, you know, being willing to sort of step back and say, I'm so committed to getting this done that even I agree I'm not the person to get it done and I'm willing to step back and let someone else do it. Mm. That is, you know, that's the sort of thing that, that is very difficult, but that sometimes is what wins the day. And, um, you know, I, I, I've had a couple of instances in my own work where I've seen that, you know, for lack of sheer will, we would have been defeated. Huh. Well, you know, in that same spirit, I, one of the lessons you and I took out of the book really appreciated was how you talk about the importance of, of, 
perseverance and sticking with something for the long run. I think that we often feel like if we're really passionate about something and willing to work hard, things should come to us quickly or they should happen quickly. And that sometimes sheer will means sticking with something even when it's hard and even when it requires several steps along the way to getting what you want. Um, can you can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. And I, I think the, one of the examples I talk about is the fight for marriage equality in the state of New York, where uh, we lost the legislative fight. We lost in the floor of the legislature there. And, um, you know, the only solution, the only answer, if, if we if we had the will to keep fighting for marriage, which we did and which was the right thing to do, was to spend two years basically trying to change the makeup of that legislature. In other words, try to defeat people who voted against us and replace them with people who would vote with us or try to turn some of those no votes to yes. And unfortunately, I think that the the prospects were much greater for um, defeating the no's and replacing them with yeses. So we sort of had to turn back to the community and say, we're still committed. We've got the will to do this. It's the right thing to do. We'll never concede. We'll never back off this fight. But this is a long, arduous, tedious, you know, two-year process of finding people to run against these people, raising money for them, going door to door, you know, all of the things that go along with an election, and then hoping that in the next election, we have a better outcome, that the the face of the legislature in New York is more supportive, and we go back and do this again. It was a very sobering message to deliver to heartbroken people in New York who thought, there's got to be another way to do this. You know, there's got to, I mean, there's got to be another way with this cast of characters who are down here on the floor of this legislature to get them to change their mind, to go back and vote again. Like, you can't tell me this is going to take two more years of this kind of hard work. But, you know, that was the only answer. Yeah. It was the only answer. It was the only path forward. It was a hard message to deliver. It was a hard message for people to hear. Um, but, that was it. And there were an awful lot of, you know, activists and bloggers and and, and um, grassroots folks around the edges who were saying, you know, you've got to be kidding. Like, there's got to be something else here. There's got to be another way. That is such an uninvent, you know, uninventive, unoriginal, long, drawn out, horrible path that we've got to go down. And I said, it's the only path. It's the only way. You know, it's it, it's how it gets done. And that's what we did. And that's what people in New York did. And the next election was a better one. And they changed the makeup of that body. And then they went back and voted again and they won. Wow. So you're no longer at HRC. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your work now. And particularly, I'm wondering if now that you're in a new setting, which which you talk about in the book at your consulting firm, I'm wondering if some of your strategies have changed or if some of the things that you learned during your work at Emily's Listen HRC have had to be kind of readapted for a new setting. Well, I think to your second question, one of the things that's been really interesting is that, in fact, my my strategy you know, or, or these ideas that I write about have been put into play in a much more significant way in my new role, because, you know, I, for eight years at the Human Rights Campaign with a staff of 150 people, you know, ideologically, most of them were in line with me. 
I mean, you know, we had a lot of diversity, but I mean, in terms of our ideas, in terms of our beliefs, in terms of what we were working towards, we were all in pretty much in agreement. And the same was true for 13 years at Emily's List. So what's been interesting now, you know, running a firm of about 15 employees is that for the first time in my professional life, I am in the company of people with very different views than I have, you know, in terms of their religion, in terms of their politics, in terms of their ideology. And so it really, more than any other place I've been, has been a setting where I have had to live the lessons of this book on an almost daily basis. And, you know, you'll see in the book I write, some of the examples that I use are actually about my current work life environment. Um, So I've really, you know, I've enjoyed actually the challenge of having to put these lessons to work in, in my current environment because you know I'm able to sort of see, you know, in, in real lived experience how it works or doesn't work. Um, so the, the firm that I, I started with uh, with uh, my friend Ted Gavin four years ago is a uh, a corporate consulting organizational consulting firm that helps both healthy and distressed businesses. Um, you know, get to a better, healthier place, whether it is around financial issues or, you know, better public policy, better corporate social responsibility. Um, and, you know, we do a lot of interesting work uh, for a wide variety of clients. Um, I also, uh, I, I serve on the board of Planned Parenthood and do a lot of work with Planned Parenthood, um, you know, both in terms of advocacy, but also in terms of some of these organizational challenges that they face. Uh, and I also serve on an organization called Priorities USA, which is one of the super PACs working in this election cycle uh, on behalf of, of Secretary Clinton. Wow. So quite a different change in setting, but it sounds like it's it's giving you more opportunity to really practice the things that, that you honed and that you wrote about. Um, before we go, because I know we've taken up a lot of your time, are you working on any other projects right now? Uh, you know, not yet. This book just came out last week. Uh, I worked on it for about nine months. And um, as anybody who's written a book, I'd never done this before. But, you know, I turned it in in April. They gave it back to me with some edits and I turned it back in on May 15th. And then, of course, you never sort of see it or hear about it again until it comes out. And it just came out last week. So now I'm very much, um, you know, in the mode of promoting it and talking about it. Uh, and I'll, I'll you know, do that probably certainly for the rest of the year and see how it goes and see how it's received. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had a couple of people in, in college and university settings talk to me about um, sort of getting it on college campuses, having it be, a, you know, kind of a part of a required reading for uh, college students, either in political science um, settings or, you know, kind of organizational management business settings. So I'd like to um, can continue to pursue that, which may bring me to some college campuses to do some speaking and promoting, which I'd very much like to do because that's, you know, really where this journey started for me uh, and, and see how it goes and see if, you know, at the end of this, there's, you know, <laughs> there's a follow up to be done. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations on the book and uh, good luck on the forthcoming uh, book tour. <laughs> um, so we've been just speaking to Joel Salmanese. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Joe. Oh, thank you for having me. This was great. Okay. Take care. That was my interview with Joe Solmanese, author of the new book, The Gift of Anger, Use Passion to Build, Not Destroy. 
This is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology. Don't forget to tell me what you think by going to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and clicking on Contact. Have a great week.